Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one who invites us to join him in calling you Father. Father, we pray that you would liberate us tonight from guilt about prayer and replace that guilt with a delight in praying to you, Father, as the one who loves to give us good gifts. And we pray that knowing you better would cause us to pray more and to pray bigger prayers and to pray prayers in line with your kingdom and your priorities, that your name might be honoured, your kingdom might come and your will might be done. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were asked by someone, could you teach me to pray? Uh, I wonder how you might answer that question. Now, you may not be a Christian here tonight. Uh, That would be a more tricky question uh, perhaps to be asked you. You may be trying to think through it yourself. But if you're a Christian, what would you say to someone? Would you take them to this passage in Matthew chapter 6 as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray? Would you give them a particular prayer to pray, a set of words to pray? um, Would you give a sort of title that you you need to, when you talk to God, you need to use this kind of language? Uh, Would you say to them kind of, well, you need to do it at this time of the day or uh, in this kind of place? Jesus' response to that kind of question, I think, is brought to us in Matthew chapter 6. It's a passage that is paralleled in Luke's gospel, whether it's the same event or a different parallel time. Uh, But in Luke's account, it comes about because Jesus' disciples see him praying. They see his model of prayer and they say, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? I wonder if the very model of your prayer is something that you could hold up to someone and say, this is how to pray. But when asked, well, what should we pray? Teach us to pray. Jesus says the things in, we read in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, and we could work it through line by line. I've done that elsewhere, but that's a bit tricky in one talk. I think there's just so much in there. I want to do something slightly less ambitious. I want to look at Jesus' lesson on prayer by asking two simple questions. Who are we to pray to? Answer, our Father in heaven. What are we to pray for? Answer, the kingdom of God. I'll spend more time on the first than on the second, but together they make Jesus' teaching on prayer quite surprising, incredibly simple and powerfully liberating. What we see in Matthew chapter 6 is what I'm going to call the child's prayer. It's the prayer of a child to their father asking him to bring his kingdom And I'm going to suggest the more you reflect on those two aspects, who we're praying to, what we're praying for, the more your prayer life will be transformed. The more you reflect on those two themes, the more you'll be liberated from guilt about your prayerlessness and driven to take on the privilege that you have in calling God your Father. So that's my goal for us today to encourage you to revel in your Christian identity, a child talking to your Heavenly Father, and to pray with a new sense of kingdom priority, that you speak to God as a citizen of the kingdom of God, seeking God's name to be honoured, his will to be done, his kingdom to come. Does that shape the way you pray?
So let me take you to who we pray to. We pray to the Father. Uh, If you look at your passage, you'll see that Jesus talks about in verse 9, therefore pray like this, our Father in heaven. But before he gets there, he needs to correct our wrong understandings about prayer because often we're not praying to our Father, we're praying to someone or something else. Let me show you from verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, the context of that little section is the larger teaching that we, you may have heard called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous teaching section of Jesus. And in uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 21, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, you will surely not enter the kingdom of heaven. It was just shocking to hear him say that. And he outlined in chapter 5 a radical righteousness a righteousness where God will actually change our hearts so that we're not just trying to find the loopholes in God's commands, we're really trying to obey God's commands from the heart out. We're trying to ask, how can I maximise my obedience to this law rather than, well, how do I get around? How do I minimise? How do I reduce what God has asked? And in chapter 6, religion is uh, to be something that is not just put on for the crowds. He talks about giving, praying, and fasting. And he says, do that in a way that is addressed to God and not addressed to the people watching around us. So wherever possible, do your giving, fasting, and praying in secret so that you can guard your heart from the hypocrisy of the religious performer. Now, you may kind of read verses 5 and 6 and say, well, it is telling me something about how to pray. It's telling me a technique. Go into your private room and, and pray secretly. And... But I want to suggest it's not really a technique he's telling you. He's telling you more about who to pray to, not to the crowds, but to your Father who sees you in secret. There will always be religious showmen who will sort of mimic an intimacy with God as they perform for the crowds. You need to beware, Jesus says. And Jesus says, that person, you need to pity them because verse 5, they've already got their reward in full. It's like an invoice with a big stamp on it paid. What did they want? They wanted people to notice them. What did they get? They got people to notice them and nothing more. What an incredible verdict on your prayer life. Yep, you got what you wanted, but you did not have your heavenly Father hear you. What an awful thing to be said. The story is told of the Boston clergyman who prayed such an ornate prayer that the paper on the next day described it as, quote, the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. Religious showmen were there in Jesus' day, They've been there right down through the ages. But can I suggest the temptation for this lurks in my heart and your heart tonight? 
He's not just addressing those people. He's addressing us, and Jesus wants us to hear these calls he's making. Um, As we lead publicly in prayer, there's always that little voice that kind of says, I wonder how people thought that was. Do you think I kind of got it right? Do you think I was long enough? Do you think I sounded intense enough? When when you're in your small group, you're sort of going, was that kind of, did that fit the passage? Do you think people will think I really got it? Um, Do you think it was long enough? If ever in a prayer group time you go, have I prayed long enough? The answer is stop right now. (laughs) It's not just how long though, it's did I sound earnest enough? Did I sound passionate enough? Did I kind of get a sense that I really am gripped by the... Jesus wants us to be very, very careful. Don't pray to the crowds. Pray to your heavenly Father who hears you, even when you're in secret. But he doesn't stop there. He's, he says, keeps going. And in verse 8 and 9, sorry, 7 and 8, he says, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters or pagans, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the thing you need before you ask him. Your father's a a good father who loves to give you good gifts, but he doesn't give you stuff because you say it lots and lots of times over. And yet so much of what we think people just pray, and we're not different from anyone else, Christian prayer is profoundly different. Uh, Go to 1 Kings 18, don't need to turn up in your Bible, you can if you like later, you'll find the account of the prophets of Baal, the sort of false gods of the, the, the time of the prophets. And they're up at Mount Carmel and they're having this competition almost between the true God of Israel and the false gods, the Baals. And, and the prophets of Baal, described in this in 1 Kings eighteen twenty eight, they shouted loudly. They cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. And all afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. Instead, they're kind of thinking the way you got the gods to do stuff was to kind of manipulate them through some sort of activity. Sometimes I'm saying it was sexual activity. You wanted the, 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 the gods who controlled the rain and fertility, where you kind of perform sexual acts that would make the gods to somehow act in response But it was this kind of way of thinking that you could manipulate the gods to get what you wanted. The problem is that treats God as sort of someone you can control by various techniques. Um, It's the genie lamp kind of view of God. You you rub the the lamp and uh, God will act according to what you want, your three wishes. And when you don't get what you want... Well, something's wrong. Have I prayed wrong? Have I prayed not long enough? Have I prayed in a way that kind of, if I just fix this, maybe the cord's disconnected. I just need to jiggle a little bit and God will respond. Wrong view of God. Think about vending machine. Can you, you know, when you sort of turn up and you put some coins in and you press the little buttons, A6, and you're going to want that little packet of chips or whatever, and something changes, but it doesn't fall out. And that's so frustrating, isn't it? And you're going to kind of, and you whack the machine and you hit it really hard and, Apparently people die because they try and tip the thing towards them and whatever. Uh, (laughs) Don't win in awards. But there you go. But when we treat God like that, like a faulty vending machine that we just need to pray a little bit longer, whack him a little bit harder with a stick, slash ourselves and blood come out, it's just a faulty view of God, isn't it? 
Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. He wasn't going to go, I wonder what Nick really needs. He's not clueless like that. See, in that framework, prayer has become a work to earn what we ask for. It's transactional. Now, it can happen in other religions. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Heaping up repetitious phrases. But look, it comes under Christian guises too. The Korean pastor who says, the reason you haven't been given what you ask for, I read as as a kid growing up, was because you haven't asked enough to build up credit in heaven. Think about like those little thermometers you have outside the building campaigns. You guys are... I hate building thermometers and all that kind of stuff. But you know, that kind of thing, you kind of get the money gets up and when you get enough, you, you can buy the whatever. He says, that's your problem. In heaven, there's this little thermometer and when you pray, you're making deposits into that and if you get enough, then it'll come down on earth. That's a fundamentally wrong view of prayer, isn't it? Or it could be the Christians who pray the rosary that kind of take this prayer and say, this is the prayer we're to pray, but let's do it five times, seven times. It'll work better. It'll make God listen. Or worse, use this prayer as a disciplinary measure. I do the wrong thing, say three, our fathers. Pray this prayer three times. Maybe I think if I pray in a language that God might understand, maybe, if I, maybe God speaks Latin, so I'll speak Latin or Arabic, or 16th century English. Maybe God will get it better. Maybe he's not just very good at language, so I'll just speak really slowly. You see, what kind of view are you projecting when you use that kind of category? But let's we make fun of other people. Think about the view that's portrayed when you say, if I stay up all night... And if we just pray through the night, that will make God act. You can feel free to pray for as long as you like, in any way that you like. But don't think it's, it's a, a technique that will manipulate God into action. God is your heavenly father. Come to him as a kid. Do you think something about your intensity, about your length, your eloquence, your theological precision will move God into action? You're treating him like a machine. Jesus says you are not heard because of your many words. It's not that there's a word limit. Jesus does pray into the night at times. He does pray with incredible intensity such that his his sweat came out as blood the night before he dies. Go for it with all intensity and length, but don't think the intensity and length is somehow going to move God like he's a machine. Prayer is not a technique to manipulate God. The Bible points us back to knowing the God that we prayed to. Here's the little test to work it out. I've got uh, five kids and uh, sometimes they ask me for stuff and imagine if I overheard one of my daughters talking to another daughter about how to get dad to give Uh, what they want, maybe going out for dinner or something. Imagine if they said to their sister and said, look, I found what works really well with dad is if you say it kind of with tears in your eyes. I really need to go out to dinner. I don't think I'll be a human being unless we go out to dinner. Maybe if you say it five times, I found that works. Dad is very slow. So just say dinner, 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 dad. (laughs) That may actually be work, but that's (laughs) it. (laughs) <laughs> Let's put that aside. 
as I'm working my illustration at all. Um, what about you say it in really kind of, I, I found that dad likes to be flattered. So if you say it, oh, benevolent patriarch, we thank thee for the wonderful blessings which they pour upon us. We thank you for your many, many ways in which you care for us. So please take us to McDonald's. You see, do I not think at that point I am being manipulated? Now, I am very slow and I'm easily manipulable. But at your heavenly father, do you think he might not see straight through all those little games you are playing? Praise your heavenly father who loves to give you good gifts. See, I want you tonight to spend some time reflecting on the shape of our relationship with God. Can you think about how it is uniquely Christian the way you pray? Can you think about how you are shaped by your understanding of the relationship you have with the God of the universe? Because we come to a father in heaven, verse 9. We come as children with empty hands. What are children in the Bible? When you read about children in the Gospels, you read things like this. Uh, Jesus, Matthew 18, we hear this. He called a little child to him placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not that children are more godly. It's that children have nothing to offer. Children don't come with their assets, don't come with their skills, don't come with a a CV. They just come and say, I need something. Matthew 11, verse 25, we read this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. See, God has actually arranged salvation in such a way that it's not by being clever. It's not by being wise that gets you into the kingdom of God as if it's sort of the top 10% get in. God has actually arranged salvation to teach us that we actually are just receivers. We're just little children accepting a gift. And so he intentionally gives it to those who will come in that way and not to those who go, well, God, I'm in the top descent. I really deserve it. Children have empty hands. So when you pray, pray like that. Uh, we've been trying to teach our kids um, to pray in line with this. Uh, we, their default for many years has been saying, dear God. Now, it's not wrong to say, dear God. It's nothing in the Bible against saying, dear God. The places you can find it. But actually, the overwhelming modelling of prayer in the New Testament, Jesus gives us, is to come to God and call him Heavenly Father. Our Father in heaven. Now, I'm not just playing with words because... I want to teach my kids that the Christian life is a life of dependence on God, their Heavenly Father. And that Christian prayer is just spoken dependence on God. Christian prayer is simply faith, trust, dependence spoken out loud. Which is why prayer comes hard for us. If you're an adult... You've spent a long time trying to not be dependent on other people. You've spent a long time saying from the very young age, self, self, me, self, I want to do it. And that's right in all kinds of areas, but not in this area. In this area, you remain a child. 
It's difficult for the capable. Uh, I, I call a group of people who are kind of just too capable, just a little intimidating, um, the overachievers. Um, you know, you, there's people who just, I, I just find very intimidating. Um, I don't know any of you, so that's fine. Uh, I'm, I'll just insult you generally. Um, but but you, you meet those people who are just sort of the chronic overachievers and you kind of just go, I never can compete with them on this, 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 this or this. It's hard actually to come like a little child when the rest of your life you're competing. I think it's hard for people like me who are activists in life, who internally measure their value from their output. One of the ways to test whether you really do believe this stuff, get glandular fever, get chronic fatigue and see when you can do absolutely nothing, whether you really believe that God values you, not because of your output, but because you're his child. Easy to say in this lecture room, isn't it? But it's really, really difficult to do. But you see, the hardest um, thing to learn about this is not that you're adults, capable activists. It's actually because you and I are both sinners. And our heart and the centre of what sin is, is self-reliance is self-salvation. I think I've done enough. I hope I've done enough. I hope I'm a good person that Jesus will see I've really wanted to live his way. But the way of entering into the kingdom is not through that. It is by being a little child who has open hands and receives a gift. See, I, I know that in my heart there is a functional atheism that lurks. That prayers of dependence do go against my grain, against my default settings. As a result of this series, you may make some decisions on how to pray. I really would love you to do that. To make it, say, I'm going to choose a time, a place and a, a method to, to pray because I really need to get better at this. I'm serious about it. I'm going to need to actually make some plans to do it rather than just hope it will gradually evolve. But you know, the greatest enemy to you going deeper in prayer is not a time problem it's a dependence problem you are used to living as if you are the god of this world and you don't mind prayer because prayer is when you ask god to assist you be god but we need to learn that god is god and we are his children and come to him and use prayer as an expression of dependence and friends that is really hard try it I was really struck when I was hearing someone speak on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. It says there, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. That is, holding up hands to pray, but so often my default setting is to hold up hands to fight, whether it's physical violence or just being pushy. The way I think things get done in this world is through this. But the Bible transforms me as a man to learn to depend on my heavenly father. So men, learn to move this world not through your fists but through your prayers. The child of God is dependent, so pray like that. But growing in prayerfulness comes from deep reflection on the identity that the gospel gives me. 
Being a child of God is not an identity I earned. It's an identity that is given to me in the gospel. Uh, Think about uh, the introduction to John's gospel. He says, whoever believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, it just comes naturally to call God your father because that's the spirit at work in you, teaching you to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Prayer is where the gospel will show itself. See, pagan prayer is trying to establish some sort of religious credibility. Oh, I've prayed for six hours. I've prayed really clearly. I've prayed really eloquently, passionately. But Christian prayer comes from a given identity, a status that Jesus has already given you when you just held up your hands as a little kid. It's expressing who you already are. It is the privilege of the child of God. I've got this image in my head. Uh, there's a famous picture, photo of JFK, of John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office um, when he was president. And one of his kids is crawling around on the carpet next to his desk. And it's this image of a kid who has the ability to go into the most powerful man's in the world's office and just kind of hang around. I love it when my kids do that. Sometimes I'm doing marriage counselling and my kids just fling the door open and say, Dad! Uh, It's not so nice for other people anyway. But (laughs) they kind of enjoy this kind of privilege that he's my dad, I'm going to go see him. We have that privilege with the God who created the universe. He's your father if your trust is in Jesus Christ. Make use of that privilege, would you? Pray to the Father who loves to give good gifts. This is Matthew 7, verse 7. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's the how much moreness there. You have a heavenly Father. Heavenly in the sense that, not that he's far off and can't kind of quite see what you're up to, it's heavenly in the sense that he sits on the throne in heaven that controls this universe. He's that one. And heavenly in the sense that he is not your earthly father, he's different from him. The passage says that, doesn't it? If you then, how evil, no doubt, give good gifts to your children. It assumes that God is the perfect father, the heavenly one. That maybe at best your earthly father sometimes reflects, but always in a flawed way. I don't know what your relationship with your father is like. Some of you tonight won't know your fathers. Some of you will know them and kind of have deep disappointment. And some of you will delight in the relationship with your father. But whatever your father is like, he is flawed compared to your heavenly father who will never let you down. So we pray to our father. You know, it is our father. It's plural. We say privatized prayer. But when we come into the kingdom, we come as God's children, but with brothers and sisters who also call on God as Father. That's why we pray, Our Father, give us our bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation. We need to pray for each other and with each other. I was talking to the morning service this morning and said, Dad's. You know the pleasure you get from giving good gifts. Don't think when you ask God for something, you're trying to sort of 
get something out of it. He doesn't want to give. God delights to give good gifts, is what this passage says. There's something in my Anglo-ness that doesn't like to be in someone's debt. I don't like to ask things. I like to kind of keep it even. Um, but God actually loves you to ask him, and he loves to give. This is one of the things I've learned as a dad, and I'm really struck by how much the Bible is calling on me to ask him for stuff. The Bible says that God is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. He says we do not get because we do not ask. And Jesus again and again doesn't say stop asking, try and kind of keep on praying, just saying God's amazing. No, he says keep on asking and pray with persistence, with audacity, he says. And I didn't quite get that until I, I was reading a book by John Piper, Desiring God, and he has a little chapter on prayer I'd really commend to you. And he said, God is actually glorified in us by him saying yes in answer to our prayers. It teaches us dependence on a heavenly father. He loves that. And it brings glory to him as he says yes to those requests. I thought, wow, I'm actually not taking from him, I'm giving to him. By putting him in the place that he always was. He's the one who's the good father. who loves to give good gifts to me. And for me to acknowledge that. Do you see how different that is from praying to the crowds? Can you see how different that is from trying to manipulate God through technique? It's acknowledging the goodness of God. The very thing we lost in those opening chapters of the Bible. Where we said, God's holding back from me. Prayer is actually saying, God, you're a good God and I trust you. Do you trust him? Do you depend on him? Pray and ask because God delights in giving you good things. Inhabit that privilege that he's given you. Do you see what Jesus is saying when he says, pray our Father in heaven? He's getting you alongside and saying, come and just stand with me. I am the eternal son of the Father. I have all the privileges of the universe to call on God as Father and for him to answer my request. Now come stand with me and pray with me to my Father. Can you see what incredible privilege we have as Christians? That the God of the universe invites us to join with Jesus in calling on the Father to rule this world. It says we'll judge angels, we'll judge the universe because we stand with Christ He includes us in his ruling of the world through our prayers. It's an incentive to pray. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on the content of the Lord's Prayer, but let me say some brief things that we pray for the kingdom. We pray not framed by our agenda. We're not simply asking God to bless our plans in life. We're God and we need him to assist our ruling of the universe. No, the other way around. We're to pray with kingdom priorities. Your kingdom come. It starts with God and ends with us and our needs. You'll notice there's two halves to the Lord's Prayer. Three petitions that address God. That God's name would be honoured. That God's kingdom would come. That God's will would be done. And then three petitions on our needs for the provision of our bread, for the forgiveness of our sins, for protection from evil. Let me draw you back to thinking about the three directed towards God. 
the kingdom priorities expressed there. See, Israel was a kingdom, and their behavior, rather than being something that bring glory and honor to God, did the reverse. It dishonored God. The way they behaved made God's name to be brought down. When it says, don't God take God's name in vain, we tend to think, oh, well, don't swear when you crash the car. Don't use God's name as a swear word. And please don't do that. But your whole life will either bring honour or dishonour to the God that you worship. And the Israelites, through their injustice, through their oppression of the poor, through their wickedness in their relations with each other, made God's name a mockery. And so in Ezekiel uh, 36, God actually addresses that question. And he says, the solution is going to be that I myself will come and I will be the shepherd for the sheep. And I will wash them to take away their sin, to cleanse them from impurity. And I'm going to change their hearts by my spirit. I'm going to take away their heart that is stony and, and, and hard. And I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. That's the promise, Ezekiel 36. Jesus turns up and says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, John 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. You must be born of water and of the spirit. That's the language of Ezekiel 36. I'll wash them with water and I'll give them my spirit to change their hearts. So the call of Jesus is to allow his spirit to wash you. And so the child of God is a child of, a citizen of the kingdom, seeking glory for Jesus, seeking his honour. And as a church, you are seeking the honour and fame of Jesus in Auckland. So our prayers must be soaked in that big agenda for the world, not just your small little vision of what you want in the next three years and your kind of plans for your life. Think what God is doing in this world and with his kingdom. How many times have we assumed that prayer is not working simply because God has not joined our agenda rather than coming like Jesus? Not my will, but yours be done. See, if he had the wrong view of thinking, he would have thought God was broken. But it was at that very moment that he showed his dependence and obedience to his heavenly father. Well, you might kind of say, well, that means it, it must be wrong to pray for ourselves and our needs because we must be consumed with God's plans and purposes and that would be a wrong conclusion because the second half of the prayer is prayer for ourselves. As citizens of the kingdom, as children of coming to our heavenly father, what should we be praying for ourselves? If I asked you what your needs were tonight, what would you say? Is it reflected in what Jesus encourages us to pray for ourselves here? If I looked at your prayer life for the last three months, what would it say about what you think your needs are? Well, Jesus says three things to pray for. For the provision of your bread, for the forgiveness of your sins, and for protection from evil. Imagine if we were really shaped by this teaching, that the thing you really, really felt was your need was the forgiveness of your sins, was to be protected from walking away from Jesus, from dishonouring him in your actions. Let me just quickly um, paste through those three things. The first request, give us today our daily bread. It shows God cares about our material needs. Jesus is not so super spiritual that he just says, just pray lots. 
He says, invites you to pray for your daily bread. He says, Matthew 6, verse 31, don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Don't worry about them. You are dependent on God for them. So like Israel had to learn the lesson that he would provide bread for that day and only for the coming day. That was the way of God teaching them to trust him. Will you trust God for your needs? When you become anxious, it says, I've stopped trusting. Turn your anxiety into prayer, the Bible says. Secondly, it reminds us of a need that is visible, that is not visible. Um, I, I did the 40-hour famine, I remember, at some point, And uh, can I say, I was not unaware of my hunger. Um, but Jesus' prayer shows a need that you may be unaware of. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We have a need for forgiveness. We have a feeling. You may have a feeling of guilt. Some people do, some people don't. But Jesus is talking here of a real and objective guilt. And he describes it as a debt that needs to be paid. Mark Twain, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. I wonder how much daily praying of this petition would shape our self-perception. See, our understanding of sin is often just so shallow. Oh, sin is something I did in the past, but now I've become a Christian. Um, I'm sort of getting 95%. I know it's not 100%, but kind of I'm, I'm doing pretty okay. That just doesn't get how deep sin is. Remember who we are. We are as little children coming before our Father. And then finally, protection from evil. We've all prayed for safety a thousand times over, but how often have I prayed for the unseen danger of giving in to sin, the work of the evil one, the temptation? It betrays, doesn't it, what I see as the real threats are in life. And Jesus invites me to acknowledge that there is a battle raging that is unseen for my soul. Ephesians 6 verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus in this prayer gives us a very simple prayer. It's a child's prayer. And in this prayer, he gives us an identity that's a gift and a priority that is the kingdom. And you have a dad who wants you to ask him that he might demonstrate to you that he is good. I'll ask you tonight, will you take him up on it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us to pray. We pray that you would be clear to us as a good God who loves to give good good things. And we pray that your agenda for this world would fill our minds and our horizons. We pray that you would take from us the religious hypocrisy of praying to the crowd the insulting tendency to treat you as a machine to be manipulated and as prayer, as a work to offer you. Father, we come tonight instead with open hands and we recognise that you are our Heavenly Father, a good Father, a Father who rules this universe from your heavenly throne. And we pray 
that you would give us good gifts in response to our prayers. We pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done and your name would be honoured. We pray it in Jesus' name.